Hello, I am back. You thought I was gone for good, but I'm back spamming your RSS feeds with uh, the One-Eyed Man Show. In case you'd forgotten, my name is Mike Stopforth. My guest on the show today is a chap called Daniel Hume. Daniel was a guest lecturer on my master's program back in 2019 and by some distance the most impactful certainly for me on a on a personal level the reason why is that he covered in his talk the very foggy topic of artificial intelligence and specifically how it's understood and approached by business i'm a firm believer that one of the things going really wrong in digital transformation is a lack of consistent unified definitions for all of these trends and technologies that are so amazing and inspiring and of course disruptive you know so much money time and effort has been spent on these things that everyone at the boardroom table seems to have a different definition for and that for me certainly seems like a recipe for disaster Daniel's perspective on this topic in particular blew my mind. And it's no surprise, he's the CEO of a business called Citalia, which focuses on developing workable AI solutions for businesses around the world. It was also incidentally recently acquired by WPP, which is the same network that bought my agency. So we have that in common, if not for the fact that Daniel is probably 40 IQ points above me. And that definitely puts us in different categories from a humanity perspective. I hope you enjoy the discussion and Daniel's intelligence as much as I did. On with the show. Cool, Dan, thanks for making the time. I wanted to jump right in. Uh, in your talks, a cursory stalking of Daniel Hume Online reveals a couple of videos uh, on YouTube and and I've, I've watched a few of them. I've learned a ton and I've stolen liberally from your content. But you talk about doing your PhD mapping uh, the neurology of a bumblebee's brain. Tell me about that. Tell me how you got to that decision and a little bit about your journey with this topic. Yeah, my, my undergraduate was um, computer science with cognitive science. So it was actually AI before it was called AI or before AI became cool. And I, I, I later went on to do a master's in in neural networks, uh, which yeah. I guess what people are currently calling deep learning. The natural step from from that master's, because I fell in love with academia, was a PhD. And originally, actually, my PhD was to model the brain of a bumblebee. Bumblebees have about a million neurons, and they can do amazing things. They navigate 3D worlds. They recognize objects. They, they're very, very smart from a visual perspective. And, yeah. and they have very similar visual characteristics as human beings. And 18 years ago, when I was doing my PhD, it was we didn't quite understand how biology saw the world. And the question was, could we model it in a machine uh, and then and then try to understand how biology sees? Now, as it happens back then, modeling a million neurons in a machine was very, very hard. And it was only halfway through my PhD that I realized it was probably going to be impossible. So I actually mm. got interested in a different type of uh, technology or, or science called optimization, which is around yeah. decision-making. And uh, my, my PhD ended up being um, in in that field, uh, which is computational complexity. So I, I emerged from that PhD understanding hopefully deeply about neural networks, which is one type of or flavor of AI and another type of technology, which is around decision making. Uh, and, and then since then, I've been trying to bring these two types of technologies together to, to drive value for businesses. So just in that answer, we touched on already a couple of terms that get thrown around liberally in boardrooms and conferences Indeed. around the world. And again, in your talks, you talk about the importance of clear definitions of AI. And, and there's, you know, in your opinion, there's two kind of 
operating or, or broadly accepted definitions, one that's popular uh, and one that's maybe a little less popular. Do you want to run us through those quickly and tell us why you adopt the latter rather than the former? Indeed. You know, actually, the, the reality is, is there are many different flavors of, of technology that are currently being called AI right now. And, and in, in, in a lot of my kind of public talks, I, I reduce them to, to two. Um, mm -hmm. but, but actually, it might be helpful for me to kind of highlight several of them uh, for, for this be audience. Be, be, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess there's, there's a whole load of um, uh, interest in, in replicating humans, whether it be visually represent, replicating them or through chatbots. And um, that's one set of flavors of technologies or, or activities to allow us to essentially replicate or represent um, uh, machines as human beings. And from that, there are lots of interesting ethical questions, which is, you know, should you declare that you're engaging with a bot or should you not? And, and anyway, so th that, that's one kind of flavor of technologies. Another flavor of technologies are what people call machine learning. And machine learning is very, very good at finding complex patterns in data. Yeah. And that raises, again, lots of interesting challenges. Uh, we can ins extract insights from data uh, that we might or not want to extract or, or, or might sure. um, mean that we're identifying vulnerabilities in, in people and, and, and whatnot. And anyway, this, this is a whole set of technologies, that, that machine learning that, again, people are calling AI, which I don't think is quite AI. There's, there's a whole set of technologies around decision-making, and that's decision trees and things like that. So, uh, and then there's a, there's a whole set of technologies that are re repl replacing human um, tasks. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the, the definition that, that I ultimately gravitate to comes from the defini definition of intelligence. So you'll see that from some of those earlier definitions there are they're, they're usually mapped to human intelligence because humans are the most intelligent thing we know in the universe and when we get machines to do things that humans do either look like human beings or behave like human beings or replace human beings we we, we call that ai uh, and, and the reason why i struggle with that is because humans are quite limited actually in our our, mm. our intelligence we're we're very good at finding patterns in about four dimensions and we're very good at solving problems up to seven but we can get machines to do things significantly better than that but so so instead of using human beings as a definition of intelligence which is what i think most people do um, there's a much better definition of of, in, of of ai that comes from the definition of intelligence which is goal-directed adaptive systems so or goal-directed adaptive behavior. So that is systems that are able to make decisions, learn about whether those decisions are good or bad, and then adapt themselves so that next time they can make better decisions. Now, human beings are incredibly adaptive, but so are mushrooms and dolphins. And if I built a machine that could behave like a, a mouse, it would be the most intelligent machine uh, that we would have ever built. So benchmarking machines against humans is a very silly thing to do. And actually, it's about building systems that can adapt themselves safely in production. Uh, and that, for me, is the true paradigm of AI. So would it be criminally reductive to say that the operating definition for a lot of people is getting computers to do some of what people can do? Uh, even if it's in a very narrow band of specialization or interest. But I think what you're talking about is is exploring opportunities to allow machines to do what machines can do to the fullest extent of their capability and empowered, obviously, with parameters and guidance and the goals that you spoke about uh, from, from our perspective. Is that is that too simplified, or is that no, another that, way of kind of thinking about it? It's absolutely spot on. So, so I guess the, the reductive two definitions are, as you say, getting computers to do things that humans can do, and the second one, which I think is much 
more robust, which is goal-directed adaptive behaviors or building systems that can adapt themselves in production. If we only think about the first one, if we only think about getting system, building systems to do things that humans can do, we're actually limiting our ability to apply AI to drive value to, to the world um, if, if we're only thinking about intelligence with respect to human beings. So, so anytime a program, for lack of a, any broader term, I mean, it's broad enough already, but a, a piece of software requires human intervention to do its job. It's not necessarily AI. So I, I think that you, a system needs to be able to make a decision learn about okay. whether that decision is good or bad so and adapt itself and very often a human being is currently in that loop either they're updating the algorithm so that it makes better decisions or they're part of the decision making process and where you have a human being in the loop then you don't have this kind of adaptive model and therefore i would argue that it's not ai Okay, so right now we've got like this whole array of ingredients and we're combining them in different recipes to get different cakes, but ultimately the chef is a pretty important part of that process. The computer's not necessarily playing the role of chef. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah, indeed. And that actually again, maybe just to, to stretch the analogy is that um is that is that people are currently calling technologies AI, so they're calling machine learning AI or chatbots AI or whatever. Actually, there isn't an AI technology. An AI is a manifesto, and that manifesto is systems that can adapt themselves in production, and that might require different types of ingredients to be able to achieve that 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 definition. So, following that that assertion or that definition or your operating definition, you you make a pretty bold statement in a lot of your talks that a lot of what's being called then AI or sold as an AI solution maybe is not all that near to that definition, or at least the the complete promise. Uh, of that manifesto. So then you, know, you run a business that attempts and succeeds in helping organizations solve problems using these tools and approaches. How, how much of your work is just educating uh, your own market? Yeah, I spend 80% eight, eight, eight of my time. Yeah, you know, it's, well, it's something that I'm really passionate about, so I, I don't mind doing it at all. But um, I spend 80% of my time kind of educating people about what these technologies are are and aren't because I I do see a a massive amount of misunderstanding, a massive amount of misinvestment. Um, We we get very excited about new technologies. And of course, everybody is very excited about machine learning at the moment, which is very good at finding insights and patterns from data. But machine learning or deep learning or neural networks are very good at doing that, but they're not good at making decisions. And I would controversially argue that companies don't have machine learning problems. They don't have insight problems. They have decision problems. And Mm. that is typically a completely different flavor of technology. And uh, yes, you do need insights to be able to make better decisions, but don't start with the insights. You need to start with what decision needs to be made. So, so I do a lot of education around that. And, and, and actually, I, what I'm seeing, again, is, is companies investing a lot in extracting insights and realizing that's not driving value in their businesses because it's usually then the human being making the decision off the back of that in, insight. And actually, if you, if you replace the human being or made the decision-making better, that's where you get the big wins. And then you can work backwards and see about creating better insights. So that, that, I think that's where Satalia has been successful is that we, we typically start out with what's the decision that needs to be made, make sure that's being solved extremely well and then mm. work out what insights and what data is required to be able to make better decisions so you, you take the human being out of the loop you drive value by making better decisions that's measurable value and then you use these other flavors and technologies to exploit that solution that you've created i feel like you've been a little diplomatic because it's worth going off on a tangent and recognizing that and especially i think in the last two years since since i you know first had the opportunity to hear you speak that 
there's been overwhelming evidence that despite having access to more data than ever before, and you'd argue with that a fair amount of knowledge and a fair amount of experience, human beings seem to be remarkably good at coming up with poor decisions or producing poor outcomes, even, even though we have more. So maybe this is not entirely true, but it's the way it feels is that uh, despite having access to so much more data than we ever have before, we, we seem to be losing the ability to make really good decisions out of it. Do you see that tracking at all? Or is that just a narrative? Yeah, yeah, no, no, there, there are lots and lots of examples of that. And again, I think partly because we're getting seduced by the idea of, of new technologies, partly because also we're being seduced by the idea of, oh, we need to get all of our data together because that's going to then drive value in our business. And and, and the reality is, is that and, and most people that have been in business long enough uh, know that ultimately what we need to do is identify what are the frictions within our business and then mm. what are the right technology solutions to be able to alleviate those frictions. It doesn't start out with a data lake. It doesn't start out with technology. It starts out with the frictions. But but mm. there does seem to be a an excitement, potentially a, a, a delusion around Let's invest in 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 these technologies, and 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 it will drive value some somewhere in the future. And then reality is that doesn't that doesn't typically work. Uh, and and I guess there are other things as well, which are kind of more a micro level, which is people think by, for example, taking past data, we can then apply these technologies to somehow predict the future. And in some cases, that's true. Uh, you can you can look at three years worth of data and and, and make some sort of predictions from from that data, but the reality is, is that there'll be some human being in your organization that's very good at, at making some sort of predictions, whether it be sales forecasts or trends or whatever. And they're using various different data sources to be able to make their predictions. And we forget that. We just think, let's just let's just bring lots and lots of data together and then throw some smart people at it to try and make some predictions for the future. But actually, there'll be already domain experts in your organizations that are able to bring some data sets together in their own mind and make some sort of prediction. And I would always start there. I would start with where the human being is actually solving that problem. And let's look at what data sources they're using uh, to be able to make that prediction. And it's likely we'll be able to build an AI machine learning model. They'll be able to either replicate or improve over that human being. If a human being isn't solving a problem, then, then yes, you typically have to go and then mind and find that those insights from data. But again, you have to approach it in a very sober way. You, you don't just bring it all together and throw some smart people at it. You, you have to approach it in a scientific way, which again, I don't see very much of in, in industry. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's potentially a very piercing insight because nine out of 10, maybe a higher percentage of the, than that of the digital tra transformation projects that I consult to or hear about or read about or interact with are about solving the data challenge. How can we get more data and organize that data and access it and distribute it to people in a meaningful way? And what I'm hearing you say is, and, and the, uh, another English author that I follow and, and uh, you know, business thinker, a guy by the name of, of Tom Goodwin, talks about asking the question of what would your company look like if you built it today? You know, kind of without the burden of legacy and without kind of a lot of the bureaucracy and the, the red tape that hampers your thinking and innovation. And it's, in a way, you're kind of talking about that. Is it what are those, what are those key decisions, key tensions that we need to resolve and then work back from that objective? Whereas it seems that the cart is getting put before the horse um, more often than not in, in these big digital transformation initiatives and especially in, in clients like many of the ones that you work with that are 
inanely complex. So, so how do you resolve that in, in a consulting capacity? Yeah, so I I should say that I'm I do think that building a a data lake and a, an EDL or ETL is is the is the right thing to do. I think that there yeah. needs to be an interface that all of your different applications can can talk to to be able to get data that is golden data, single version of the truth, all of that kind of stuff. And and yes, companies are currently now having to retrofit their kind of spaghetti architectures mm. and then and then bring in a data lake. But I think that they. They then think that by then putting an analytics layer on top of it and then by trying to somehow enable self-service or enable people across the organization to engage with this analytics layer that it's going to somehow magically drive value in the business. And and and, and, it, and I don't think that it will. I think that what you do need to do is, as, as I mentioned, you need to identify frictions, solve those frictions. But and as you're solving those frictions, start to bring your data together in a consistent and, and, and robust way rather than building the data lake and then and then building applications on top of it because most of the data lakes are digital transformation initiatives that I'm seeing in, in, in industry they're not they're not architecting their um, infrastructure first of all in a way that that allows them to build applications on top of it nor allows those applications to be able to adapt themselves in production which if you remember is the true paradigm of, of AI so my, my advice would be to piecemeal while you're solving problems, driving value in the business, start to build your data lake and you have one consistent platform. But uh, yeah, that, that, that's how I would approach this. And, and I think it was a Gartner statistic that said that 80% of data lakes or digital transformation is going to fail. Uh, and and right. I think it's because of that, that approach, yeah. yeah. Yeah, almost as if it's it's been pursued as a, a um, to its own end, uh, for its own purposes, yeah. rather than with a, a greater objective or outcome in mind. We've spoken a little bit about data and we've alluded to uh, some of the conversations that are happening in our clients about data. You also talk about dispelling myths around data quite a lot. What do most people believe to be true about data that's actually not true? Well, well there, there, are, there are myths associated with with collecting lots of data and, and expecting you to, to find you know, magnificent insights from that data that's going to drive a huge amount of value. Uh, I often hear, I'm sure you've heard many times, can we do a quick win? <laughs> and uh, I, I often say that that's an oxymoron. Uh, the, the win you get is commensurate with the amount of energy that you put in. Mm. And, um, and and I'm seeing an underinvestment in ensuring that you're driving the value that, that people um, need. But when it comes to data, actually, the, the biggest blocker in that I see in, in AI projects succeeding is is in accessible uh, the accessibility to the right data. Either they 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 just assume that the signals are in the data, or they're not accessing the data that they need to be able to to to, to drive the value. Um, I mean, there, there's a whole load of um, um, other myths associated with the governance um, uh, and ethics associated with with data. The the example that I like to use sometimes is if you imagine a ride hailing company and you build an AI that um, is able to use your battery data and understand that when your battery data is very low, it, you're willing to spend more money on your, your ride. And essentially what it's done is it's identified a vulnerability in, in human beings mm. and it's exploiting that vulnerability. It knows that your battery is low and you're going to spend more money on your ride. Now, if I use that battery data not to expo exploit you or get more money from you, but if I use that battery data to prioritize your ride, then that would be a, a, a more ethical way of using data so it's not a question of of what data do we 
keep and what are the ethics associated with that data is to do with the intended use of data, the intended use of these technologies that needs to get scrutinized. And again, I think there's a lot of confusion around AI ethics um, and, and uh, controversial, I would argue that there's no such thing as AI ethics, um, that, that, that most problems that we're facing within in, in this field are safety problems. How do we build systems that are, are, are explainable and that are behaving safely? Most of the ethical questions that we're dealing with are to do with the intended use of the technology, which fits firmly within the, the human being. Uh, and then the, the realm of, of, of the decision making decision making of the human being so so there's quite a lot of myths out there there's quite a lot of stake oil being sold jumping on the bandwagon that, mm. I, that again i spent a lot of my time educating people to spot i had a, a revealing conversation with the cto of a big medical insurance business here in south africa the same medical insurance business that i use and um he said to me, what I could know about you terrifies me. You know, this idea that if, if all of that insight, all of that data could be amalgamated in, in extremely intelligent ways to make those kinds of inferences. But I, I love that example because by the same token, you could use that insight or that knowledge to pair the rider with a driver that has a, a, an appropriate charger in their car so that they can boost the battery. Power. There are ways to apply Indeed. that same insight with a moral framework that still you could argue is going to deliver on business objectives. I guess it depends on, on how you, how you think about the problem that you're trying to solve. So I, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about what I sensed when I heard you speak to us live was a real passion point for you. And, and that's the, the, the application of this kind of insight to organizational design, how we design teams and design businesses. And you spoke about how you're very much a fan of eating your own cooking and applying this sort of intelligence to the way you design Satalia as a business. And I must be honest with you, hearing you talk about that, and I think I might have asked this question uh, when you finished, I was a little skeptical because <laughs> my experience has been that we can talk with a great deal of idealism and passion about organizational design um, and about how we structure teams for efficiency and collaboration until a particular point. And then it seems like to me, the sheer weight or, or the sheer scale of the organization starts to produce kind of diminishing returns. Um, what has your experience been as Satalia has grown applying that same level of intelligence to, and maybe you could just explain your philosophy behind that a little bit. Um, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, I, so I think we've, we've already discussed this, but AI can be applied to sell more stuff and it can be applied to improve your supply chains and all that stuff's very exciting. But what, what I'm also very passionate about is how it can be applied to reinvent how organizations operate. Mm. And um, very often what happens is that when a company starts out and grows, it's usually a product or a service and it's, it organizes itself, structures itself to delivering on that type of business. And then, yeah. you know, pressures come and you, you have to then diversify your, your revenue streams and you end up looking services if you're a product company or try and productize if you're a service company and your organizational structure is not set up to deal with that dynamic change. Yeah. So I, I'm interested in how do you create an operating model for a company that allows for the right structure to emerge according to the innovation that's being taken to market, either it's a service or an asset or a product or even a company that's delivering on all of those things. How can you have the right organizational structures to deliver that innovation to market as fast as possible? Which um, and, and so the that, that's the goal is how mm -hmm. do you make an organization be the most innovative 
um, uh, uh, organization it can be. But remember, innovation is in some respects synonymous with adaptation, which is synonymous with, with intelligence. The more innovative I can be, the more adaptive my organization can be to a changing world, the more intelligent I am. So um, the faster we can innovate, the more the more intelligent we are um, and the more likely we are to, 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 to win in inverted commas. So I, I think that what happens is as companies grow, they end up having to put hierarchies in place to deal with the complexity of that growth, uh, to be able to share information, move information around, control decision making, all of that kind of stuff. And what what the, the kind of key principle that, that I've been trying to build from is you should identify the best group of people to be able to make the best decision that needs to be made. And that that might be um, hiring, firing, feedback, strategy. Um, it's not determined by the hierarchy, but determined by the, the, the people who are best placed to make that decision. Mm. And it might be that one person in that organization is the absolute best person to make that decision, and they should have all of the, the power or votes for that decision. Or it might be a situation where everybody has an equal waiting. And and, and, and so you can imagine this concept, what I think America are now calling liquid democracy. Mm. It's, it's waiting decision-making power according to how well we think that person can make that decision. Mm. You wouldn't necessarily go and crowdsource somebody to a group of people to teach your son or daughter how to do ballet you'd go to somebody <laughs> that has an expertise in and, and 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 the same principle applies in 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 companies is that you need to identify the best people now ai and and now that we're working from home and and we're creating a much more richer digital footprint ai can identify those people in a much more granular way we can identify people who are good at giving feedback who are inspiring people who are the right people to decide on somebody's salary for example mm. and the ai can then weight that decision making now the challenge with challenges with that are it, it does increase complexity uh, so by moving from a hierarchy or a fixed hierarchy and having these dynamic decision making hierarchies it increases complexity it does also put challenges around accountability and responsibility and uh, you know today i might be responsible for one thing and Tomorrow I might not be responsible for it. So how can people understand that those levels of responsibility? But I believe that you need to organize your company in a way that is ultra dynamic, that allows people to be able to make the best decisions quickly. Uh, and and that, that's the underlying principle behind, behind how I'm thinking about creating Satalia. We've been thinking about this for well over a decade. Um, I've, I've got it. I've got I've got the I think key principles designed some of them working some of them not for about 120 people I haven't managed to to go beyond the 150 people the Dunbar number which is the which is a magic number in in, in this type of world but now I am chief AI officer at WWPP and I've now got 100,000 people to apply these crazy ideas to and mm. my ultimate goal is to scale it to a planet I want to try and create a world where everybody can work on what they want where they want how they want I mean, I love this, and I'm fascinated by the topic of organizational design, both in terms of the intention of organizational design and then what tends to naturally happen as organizations reach a certain size or a certain level of priority or, as you mentioned, a certain level of complexity. My favorite kind of operating example here is always the Google example. Right? So if you compared the relative innovation produced per person uh, in Google's first maybe four or five years versus the organization that they run now. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a natural byproduct of the scale and the reach and the scope of that business. And I guess, I guess where I've arrived is that maybe it's a bit of both. And while I'm not a huge fan of military thinking, I find the model of 
the very structured and hierarchical army, traditional military structure, quite interesting because it seems to have struck a balance between very rigorous architecture and also a fair amount of autonomy at literally at the coalface, you know, um, in the line of fire based on a set of principles for decision making. And I think there's, you know, there's something to be said for a really effective combination of both because I do believe that this is one of the, one of the areas we will see the most long-term change in uh, coming out of the last couple of years is that I think we'll, we'll hopefully think quite differently about how we design organizations. There'll be less of this emphasis on a centralized HQ and our building is bigger than your building and, you know, kind of this very kind of industrial age ego driven model of power and, and influence. And we've been talking about that for a long time, but I think it was accelerated in many ways. So I, I think that's fascinating. And yes, I uh, uh, have subscribed, like many acolytes, to Dunbar's theory around 150 people as being the maximum number of a, of a, a meaningful uh, network or community. But I think it's inter- I think it's fascinating. I'd love to watch and learn more from your insights as you as you guinea pig that on that WPP beast. Let's <laughs> see what Indeed. happens. From there. Well, we're, we're very fortunate in the sense that it's the output. Satali is some of Satali's products and offerings. So if we can make it work for us, we can then help other organizations become more efficient and effective using these technologies. So it ends up becoming part of our product offering, but it also helps us achieve our purpose. And our purpose is to try to is to try to remove the friction from innovation so that it becomes almost free. So the idea is that you can create essentially ultimately in the future a world of abundance because you can get innovations to market so quickly, so cheaply that that, that all of our, our needs are met. And uh, and so we're very fortunate these three things, how Satalia operates, the products that we, we create, and also the purpose of Satalia all, all are in harmony. But I should also say that it does sound like it might be chaos, and uh, but it's not. You, you, you do have to have very, very strict rules to allow this type of organization to to operate. It's just that it's more complex than, than, than traditional hierarchies. Yeah, I always think about the difference between the subtle difference, maybe semantic difference, but between rules and parameters. And I think it's interesting discussing parameters, the kind of borderlands of our exploration and creativity. Sort of this tabletop is where you can work and create, and but there are boundaries to that. Going over those boundaries is going to be detrimental to everybody involved. Whereas rules are quite restricting from an innovative perspective or an innovation perspective. And I feel most creative people, and especially in organisations like WPP, kick quite hard against the notion of rules. So yeah, I, I always used to toy with those two as being kind of complementary ideas, or in some cases, uh, conflicting ideas. So in your in your talks. Uh, you start with an introduction where you say, I'm going to talk a little bit about the definitions of AI, and I'm going to talk a little bit about decision-making, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the end of the world, <laughs> which I'm sure has everybody moving to the front of their seats as you say it. Um, and it's difficult to have a conversation about AI with anyone without getting into the territory of James Cameron and Terminator 2 and Cyberdyne Systems and Skynet and the end of the world and and the theories on this subject of what might happen when computers theoretically reach a level of super intelligence as divergent as the <laughs> number of people that are talking about it. Um, you do have a, a position on the topic. Uh, at least my understanding is that you have a current dis- uh, uh, position on the topic. Can you talk to me a little bit about why this scares you or if it does scare you and, and how you think about that late at night when you can't get to sleep? 
there, are, there are, I think there are a number of things that that concern me about about AI's impact on on humanity. Um, the technological singularity being one of them, which is where we build a super intelligence, a, a brain smarter than us in in every single possible way. And and the reason why it's called a singularity is we we can't we don't know what will happen beyond that point. We don't know if it's going to be the greatest thing that ever happens to us or our biggest existential threat. So by definition, I don't know what will happen. But if I was a super intelligence, and uh, then if anything that made me feel like um, uh, it was a threat to me, I would probably remove from the equation. And so if if, if we are if we are a threat to this thing, then it, it might not play nicely, or it could disappear to a different dimension milliseconds after it's created. I have we have no idea, but I, I I'd rather not just hope. I'd rather try to plan for that eventuality if we had a broadcast from aliens saying we're going to come in 50 years be prepared we would be doing something about it and and i think that we are going to build something alien like uh, ourselves a super intelligence uh, perhaps in the next 30 40 years that um that we don't know what will happen and uh, and, and I, I actually have to admit that I, I stand on other people's sh- shoulders with respect to this stuff so nick bostrom and ray kurtzweil who, who've written extensively on the on this subject uh, and i think that their concern is that they said if you there's a confluence of things that are going on with regards to data and technology and compute that that means that it, it could happen within our lifetime mm. and i think it would be a shame if um humanity was wiped out of existence um and so i'm trying to figure out how do we how do we mitigate that risk and 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 what i've concluded is that we probably need to figure out how to cooperate as a species how how can we demonstrate to this thing that we are we are not a threat by over the next 40 years figuring out how to how how we can cooperate and 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 i and i have a whole load of things that I want to try to achieve to to, to allow us to cooperate as a species. But even before then, before we potentially create a super intelligence, there are a handful of concerns that I have around the impact of AI on society. I don't Mm. know if you actually Mm. recently saw my TEDx talk about the the pestle of singularities. I Um, didn't. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, well, going back to our business school days, uh, pestle is a macro framework, right? That political, economic, social, technological, environmental, and legal. Mm -hmm. And what, what I, what I've done is I've tried to capture some of the, the concerns that people have around AI into those six different, categories okay great t being technological so s being social etc etc and yeah i'm happy to share my my tedx talk or or summarize it here if that's useful yeah i'll put it i'll put it in the show notes as well so people can dive into that but that that would be great if you could if you could run us through some of those points that would be amazing the political singularity i'm arguing is um the, the point in time where we we can't determine what's true uh, and and i guess at the moment deep fakes chatbots it, it's challenging the political foundations by polarizing people and all that stuff. But at mm. some point we won't be able to determine whether a piece of content is, is, is true or not. And and that will challenge the fabric of our reality um, as well as obviously political foundations. And that, and that's obviously the environmental singularities, singularities where these technologies allow us to, to produce more stuff, to target people, to get them to consume more stuff. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that consumption means that people are potentially accessing goods that are beneficial to themselves. They are making and enriching their lives, but it's also putting pressures on our environmental 
planetary boundaries and the concern is that we will create ecological collapse from increased consumption essentially a point, um, a point of no return yeah exactly uh the uh, and, that, and that's also a singularity because we don't know what happens when we have e- e- ecological collapse s social singularities when we cure death um again hmm. ai is potentially very useful at accelerating medicine and also monitoring ourselves so that we can we can keep ourselves uh, uh away from in existence yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and that will obviously challenge the fabric of of how we we organize ourselves as a society technological singularity we've already talked about which is super intelligence economic singularity is actually probably my favorite one which is the uh the, the concern around job losses so the economic mm. singularity is where we automate the majority of human labor and people are concerned that that means that we will have social unrest uh, because we won't have jobs. And, and I actually think that if we got the timing right, then we should actually be accelerating automation. We, we, we should be removing labor from the creation and dissemination of goods. There is a, there is a future whereby all of our energy, nutrition, healthcare, education, it's all free because we've managed to take so much friction out of it that, and we can get it to people uh, at zero cost. So there is a potential world that people are born into where they don't have to work to survive, but they all of their needs, their comforts are abundant and they can then do whatever they want with their lives and hopefully they will contribute positively to humanity. And I believe that most people that have become economically free, they don't sit at home bored and depressed. They actually try to figure out how to make the world better. And so so I actually I'm quite excited about the idea of creating a world of abundance. And then finally the L, which is the legal singularity, which is which is around surveillance capitalism or surveillance states. There's, there's a concern that a handful of companies or governments know so much about you and have the ability to manipulate you to achieve their goals. And that's an incredibly powerful position to be in. And we need to somehow mitigate against that. If if one company could manipulate everybody in the world to achieve their goals, then that's that's a singularity and, and we the flag of, yeah, yeah, of, in, of in, what's in possible yeah. yeah um and so yeah those are the six uh the pestle of singularities that's incredible what a great summary i feel like i need to go watch the ted talk and and <laughs> and spend a little bit <laughs> spend a little bit of time meditating over that uh, daniel as always it's a it's a great pleasure speaking to you and and you're always very generous with your time and your knowledge and i appreciate that deeply as somebody who's trying to answer some of the questions that you've already answered or trying to work with clients to explore these topics in more detail. Um, you, you've been a, a, a wonderful resource. Um, so, so I'm very grateful for that. And then obviously for, for today's time. Um, if there's one book that you would recommend that people should read on this topic, where would you send them? Wow. It's, um, it's really tricky because there's so many good, good books. Well, um, you don't have to uh, limit good, it to one. Well, I'll, I'll give good, you two good, or three. A good friend of mine who actually coined the term economic singularities, a guy called Callum Chase, and, and, and he's written about two singularities. So the two singularities is, is a book that he's written. Stuart Russell, one of the kind of godfathers of AI, has written um, a book recently called um, Human Compatible. Life 3.0 is a very good book by Max Tegmark. There are a handful out there. I actually, I'm interested in also um, – the reason why I'm interested in AI is because I want to what it, I want to understand also what it means to be human, and uh, mm. and so there's a book called Behave by uh, a chap uh, called um, Robert Sapolsky, uh, which helps okay. you understand about human human beings. But yeah, start with uh, with um, Callum Chase, the two singularities. 
That sounds amazing. Those are great recommendations. We'll pop those in the show notes as well. Dan, thanks for your time. I know you've got to get on to another call. I hope to connect soon. I'm going to be in London later this year and I'll definitely look you up for a coffee. Um, awesome. But yeah, look after yourself. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks so much, Mike. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Cheers. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.